Well, I'm especially grateful for that song because uh, Jerry and I were having a conversation one day and we were talking about how lavish God is to give us any and everything that is His and that we need. And what an awesome responsibility it is for us to steward that and always hold it loosely and make it available to Him. And I said, I need you to, to sing something about that. And there was like no song anywhere about that. And so I said, okay, how about just writing one? And so he did. So I, I claim a little credit. Um, that's about as close to music comp as comp I get. It's like, Jerry, would you do something? Um, I think we're talking about a very important matter over the weeks of this series. And I'm talking about how to live in time. That is to say, before time is out, I've learned how to live. And this peculiar thing that God has designed called time, that I learn how to live within that, that parenthesis of eternity, we call time. And today I'm talking about the cost of time. And you go, okay, so we're going to talk about money. Uh, we are, but that's not the cost. The cost that's related to time is trust. Now, last week I gave a very forgettable message. Anybody remember what it was about? <laughs> it was about holiness. Yes, you're forgiven. I know it was forgettable. Um, and so we were talking about the quality of time and what God is up to when He says, uh, I want you to live a certain kind of life as He wants us to live a holy life, a life that is consecrated, dedicated, given over to Him. That's what holiness is all about. It's not just about behavior. It's about a whole mentality. It's about a disposition where I give who I am and what I'm about over to Him. And today we're going to be talking about the cost of living in time, and that cost is trust. You're not going to give yourself to anyone that you don't trust. Is God trustworthy? We say He is. The book says that He is. How do you experientially begin to know that He is, in fact, trustworthy? That in a time like uh, my sister-in-law Cindy shared just a moment ago, you can turn to Him and place the totality of your life in His hands through some of life's most difficult seasons. Well, what we have been doing is looking at the life of Jesus in the last week of His life. So, as you know, He entered the city of Jerusalem on what we have come to call Palm Sunday. And there were a number of things that took place in his life over those days up until Friday when he went to the cross. And he died an atoning death for us on the cross. And I'm contending that the things that he was giving attention to, the things that he was highlighting in yellow for us that were happening in that week, are the things that we must give import and attention to if we're going to live this life well. So he comes into the city and he goes to the temple, right? Remember? In that forgettable talk I gave last week, he goes to the temple to worship and when he gets within the temple precincts, 
He sees all of this merchandising and money changing and corrupt stuff going on. And he cleaned house. Highlighting for us the fact, the need for this temple, this body that we have in which God chooses to inhabit, needs to be cleansed. It needs to be free of anything that hinders the presence and the work of God in us. So he cleans house. He's got people with jaws agape all around him. And he goes on into worship. And guess where he goes first? He goes to the place of offering. And there Jesus begins to watch people worship with their offerings. Let's look at it. It's found in Luke chapter 21, probably familiar to several of you, beginning with verse 1. And as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so in this last week of Jesus' life, he like takes the yellow highlighter and highlights this little, what for a lot of us would seem to be a meaningless moment. A woman giving her offering in worship. And yet he gets so moved and stirred about it that he takes it as a living illustration to teach his disciples this is what it's about. This is where it's at. And I want to say to you, it is about money, but it's way more than about money. You see what was going on in the lives of the worshipers, and, and do you note, he watches people worship. He watches people give offerings. Uh, I would contend he's watching your worship today. He's watching how you offer yourself. To him today, you go. You know what? This whole offering thing—I always thought that was like a really personal, private thing. You're you're talking about it like it's pretty public. Uh huh. It is. It's extremely public to God. Now, when it becomes problematic to us, is when we make it public in a way to draw attention to ourselves and to say, "I." I'm a generous guy, aren't I? I mean, I, you talk about somebody that really kicks in the money to support whatever, that's me. When we take on that kind of arrogant attitude, that's problematic. And when the Bible says, do your giving in secret, it's all about addressing arrogance and pride and self-centeredness and so on like that. But otherwise, it's a very public deal to say, you know what, I esteem God better than money. I've seen God as the treasure of my life. And uh, our fathers, 
that founded our nation understood that. Thus, our currency says, in God, we trust. Not in the dollar, not in the money, not in the coin, but in God. And so he's watching the worshipers, he's watching the offerings, and he's literally moved and stirred because this woman, by the symbolic gesture of making an offering, is giving her whole self. Giving her whole self. And that's what we tend to do with an offertory, friends. It's a way of communicating to God and to ourselves that we esteem God better. He's our treasure. We will hold nothing back from Him. Now, the problem with that is that we take money and make too much of it in our mind, in our valuing of it. So, uh, we have a challenge with our self-esteem or with our ego, and we try to use money to, to prop up a sagging esteem. I feel a whole lot better about myself when my pocket is full of money and the things that I can buy with it. Or we try to leverage it in some kind of way that brings power and influence, or we try to secure ourselves with it. By the way, all those things are what God addresses in our lives, not money. And so it's not surprising that Jesus would say, you can't worship God and money. You've got to make a choice. The primary competitor to God is, is your money. When you choose to trust in what it can do more than trusting in the person of God. And so we get all out of whack about that. We get all out of perspective about money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is your money, your heart will be wherever the money is. If your treasure is God, your heart will be with the Lord and in the presence of God, and there will be this consistent, constant engagement of Him, because He's your treasure. Now, just to kind of highlight how out of whack we get about all this. I, I mentioned a few statistical things to you a few months ago, and I just want to take a moment to remind us about it because it's important. 1.1 billion people in the world today live on less than a dollar a day. Think about that. The average American lives on $97 a day. Congratulations. You're rich. But you don't believe it. 6.8 million teenagers in America own a car. 92% of the world's population does not even own a car. In a recent U.S. survey, those that made under $30,000 a year considered rich to be anyone that made $74,000 a year or more. In other words, they basically said anybody that makes Twice of what I make is probably rich. When they surveyed those who made between thirty and fifty thousand dollars, they said rich was a hundred thousand. When they surveyed those who were just on the average, what do you think is rich? They would say, oh, one hundred twenty thousand. Now, when they surveyed those who were very wealthy and doing very well, they said, well, you'd probably have to have about five million to be considered rich. 
In other words, the guy that makes two and a half million dollars doesn't think himself rich. Now, internationally, if you earn $37,000 or more a year, you're in the top 4% of income in the world. I'll say it again. Congratulations. You're rich. If you earn 45000 or more, you're in the top 1% in the world. Why am I saying all this? Because, friends, we don't have a problem with lack of money. You go, well, Scott, look at my bank account. It's not a problem of income. It's a problem of margin. Because you see, when I made $30,000 and I lived like I had $30,000, and sometime later I made $40,000, I stopped living like I was on 30. I started living like I was on 40. In other words, whenever you and I get a raise in America, we don't maintain our standard of living and do something with the extra. We always raise our standard of living so that we perpetually have no margin. So for reasons that are way beyond my ability to comprehend, in the sovereignty of God, in the wisdom of God, He has seen fit to allow me to be an American and to live in this part of the country, close to where you are, and have the resources that I have. And He, in His sovereignty and wisdom that we can't comprehend has decided for you to live in this part of the world and to, to have and to enjoy the resources that you have. Now, what he has been up to with that is that we would be able to meet our needs with the income that we have so graciously been given and then with all that overage, be able to do things all around the world and make a difference. Bless people in the name of Christ with all the resource that He's given us. But we can't get there because we keep raising our standard of living and have no margin. And so every time a conversation happens about finances within the circle of the church, we hate it, we feel uncomfortable, it feels burdensome and taxing, and oh gosh, I don't want to even think about it. Because we have no margin. Not because God hasn't supplied more than we need. But we don't have a money problem per se. We have a margin problem. Now, I'm going to ask you for a commitment today. I'm giving you advance notice. This is where I'm going. I'm going to ask you before my time is through, will you consecrate your money to God and be holy? That is to say, I will consider all that He has given me, 100% of it, to belong to Him. And I will choose to spend it, to give it, as He leads me and prompts me about that. I will not go and just raise my standard of living because it seems good, feels good, want to. That's where I'm headed. I'm going to ask you if you'll do that. And I'm going to ask you, will you trust in God 
and not your money. So, in leading up to that, I've got to tell you, it will be personally beneficial to you to do that. Now, you know what? Whether it's beneficial to us or not is almost irrelevant. Because if God says it, then we do it, if we're going to be obedient followers of His. But, you know, being American, it's also very important to us to know, is there any payoff to this? Are there benefits to that? And so let me just quickly say, yes, there are. There are a number of benefits to being financially faithful to Him. The first is this, financial freedom. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of financial freedom that all your financial consultants would be talking about. I'm talking about a kind of freedom that says, I'm not a slave to my money. I don't worship my money. I don't treasure my money. I treasure God. I'm free from the undue influence of money. That's huge. That's one of the benefits when you practice the kind of faithfulness that I'm contending for today. Another one is that it brings about a lifestyle of simplicity. Listen, we live in a complex world. The United States is more complex than a lot of other places in the world because we make it that way. And the more that we accumulate, we've got to manage it somehow. That adds to the complexity. When you're doing what God says do with His money, it gets pretty simple. God, how much do you want me to spend on these things? How much do you want me to give for those causes? What's your pleasure about this situation over here? That's pretty simple. When you start checking in with Him and allowing Him to guide the disbursement of resource that He brings into your life. You know, it's simple. I don't even know how God communicates all that. Well, that's another whole subject. Prayer and hearing from God and all those kinds of things. But it happens and it works. And then the third thing that I'll say is that this is what builds trust in the Lord. Talk about a benefit. How am I going to learn that He's trustworthy? Well, I began to trust Him. And I take baby steps of trust, and I take baby steps about releasing and relinquishing and not holding on too tight to my resource. And then I say, I know, He's come through. He shows Himself. And I find out how trustworthy He is. And not only that, you have the benefit of experiencing the work of God. God's at work all the time. And God's answering prayers. And somebody's over here praying, Oh God, would you meet my need about X, Y, Z? And He comes over here and He says, To you or to me, give and meet the need over here of X, Y, Z. And you have just been invited to join God in His work. And it is an awesome, powerful, mighty thing to be a part of what God is doing. And then I'll say in the last place, one of the benefits is that that whole process shapes my character to be like Him. God is lavishly generous. And He just happens to say, by the way, I've made you to be like me, be generous. How does anyone ever get to a point of generosity? It's not, oh, well, when I get more, I'll give more. No, it's I will give whatever God prompts me to give now. And guess what? He'll prompt you to be generous. And that will develop 
character, characteristics like generosity in you and in me. A lot of benefits. So let's just say you're still tracking with me and you haven't already checked out because I raised the issue of money. And you're still tracking with me and you go, okay, how does someone get there? Well, you've got to acknowledge money is very powerful. And if I don't settle this issue, if I don't square it up, as Jesus said, I can't worship two masters. I'm going to choose either God or money. And I'm going to choose God. Then the way practically you begin to live that out is like this. Recognize God's ownership and your stewardship. Gary sang it a moment ago. Everything that we have is His. Everything. 100%. And we get to use it. That's what a steward is. A steward is someone who gets to use someone else's stuff. And so this whole thing of trusting God and not trusting money begins with that mentality. He owns it all. I get to use it in keeping with His purposes and His pleasure. And the second thing is this. I will give away God's money. Now, because He loves you, He gives you a certain amount of it to use for yourself. Congratulations. Enjoy. Delight in that. But He also gives you additional money because He wants you to give it away. He wants you to be a part of His distribution team. And so let me just mention these three avenues of distribution. One is tithing. Now the word tithe is an old word that simply means a tenth. And God set up a principle a long time ago. And uh, He set it up under a very legalistic system. Now we get to employ and use it in a very grace-based system. Where He said, I want you to bring at least a tenth of what you have into the storehouse, the place of gathering for my people, so that my purposes can be carried out there. Malachi 3.10. Bring your tithe into the storehouse of God. Now, do you realize, I know some of you do, but that this church does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to us. This church belongs to God. It's His. We just get to be a part of it. And God has a purpose and a plan for this, His church. He gets to call the shots. We have other people that wear like leadership hats, but every leader in our church ultimately is under the leadership and the headship of Christ. And so basically our role as leaders is to say what do you, Lord, as leader, want for your church? And when we begin to get a sense of that, well, I want you to do this ministry, and I want you to carry out these projects, and I want you to meet these kinds of needs. When we begin to get a sense of that kind of thing, we gather together in an annual meeting called the Forum. It usually happens in November. And we will share with you, we think this is what God is looking for Meadowbrook to do over 2009. And uh, after we began to get a sense of what God wanted us to do, we began to figure out what that would cost. And it will cost 
this much. And so we have created a budget to try to address the things we think God wants us to do in 2009. How do you see it? And in that forum, we give you the opportunity to give your input to pray, to say, yes, yes, I see God doing that, or no, I think maybe it might be more like this. And we come to a point of consensus and agreement. Yes, this is what God's up to. This is what it will cost. I commit to be a part of all that happening in the participation of my tithes and offerings. That's how that happens around here. We, we don't care a thing about budgets, except for the fact it helps us to systematically see how we're going to get at what we think God's asking us to do. So let me be very, very clear. I'm not talking to you today about how our budget needs your help. I will never talk to you about how our budget needs your help. I'm talking to you about one of the ways that God leads and prompts us to give His money away. And it's through tithes. And it's through the carrying out of ministry through the church that He's called me and led me to be a part of, to be invested in. And so... Just so you know, all of our books are totally open to you. If you ever have any question about what's that budget look like, how did it get formulated, all that uh, in paper and in process is available and open to you for your examination and your consideration. You need to know your pastoral staff are all tithers. Your elders are all tithers. Your small group leaders are tithers. Okay, so it's not something that we just talk about. It's stuff we do. Another thing is the matter of taxes. God leads us and calls us to give away His money through government taxes. That's why it's important that when you uh, come to grips with what you have made over the course of a year and you determine what tax is being owed on that, depending on how the government said it, that you're faithful to pay it. Because it's a God-ordained thing, Romans 13. He, and, and Jesus said, hey, whatever is Caesar's, whatever belongs to the government, give to the government. You go, well, I don't like how much the government's asking for. Then tell the government. We are supposedly a government of the people. And so we get to vote in representatives and vote on legislation and all those kinds of things. And if we don't like the, the level of taxation, then we are supposed to have some voice about that. But once things have been voted in and processed in and so on like that, then we have responsibility to be faithful to releasing God's money that He entrusts to us through taxes. And then I'll mention just briefly in the third place, another thing that God has created is what we might call free will offerings. That's a big umbrella for a whole lot of different things. Sometimes God leads me to give over and above my tithes and taxes to the work of international missions. Or even to the support of cancer research. Or to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Or any other number of things that you want to mention. But friends, I only give to those things, not because somebody's looking so pitiful and begging me for it, but because I get this divine directive, this kind of mandate where God says, here's another area I want you to release some of the resource. And whether or not it fits a 501c3 designation where I can get a tax deduction is irrelevant. I love getting tax deductions, but it's irrelevant. 
with respect to God leading and prompting and guiding us in the disbursement of His resource. So here we are. How do you live in time? Jesus says, live holy where everything is consecrated to God. It's all His. And live with trust that as you are obedient in the following of His steps, He will be good. He will be gracious. He will provide. He will make something good and glorious come out of your stewardship. Jesus got moved and stirred when He saw that a widow got it. When all the learned men with the letters didn't. Let's pray. So, Father, this thing of life is so precious and precarious. We need You to have it and to do it well. And as You've spoken to us today about holiness and trust, we pray. Give us the grace. Give us the heart, the desire, the power and the encouragement to do life as You have ordained life to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.